who you are aligned with matters. Who you are aligned with matters. And we know this is true in, in many different facets of life. In fact, we take one example of right now the NBA playoffs are happening. And, and one thing that happens in the modern NBA is players align with one another in hopes for a championship. And so you have one star athlete align with another star athlete for better hopes of competing for a championship and forming super teams. And many disdain that and celebrate it when they lose in the playoffs. But if they do lose in the playoffs, they end up disdaining one another and joining with another person in better hopes that this time it will succeed. Will I align with the right one? With the right set of circumstances for me to be victorious? Well, for us, there are many different things that we can align ourselves with. We can align with something because of obligation. We can align with something because of conviction. We can align because of convenience or because of necessity. The more the aligning demands of us, the more it says about us. And it matters more when the stakes are high. In this passage, we will see two destinations for alliance. Yet one proves to be superior. Let's look at it as we examine the text together, working through section by section to see what God has for us this morning. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard about how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and to its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men and warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. And let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, and the king of Jerusalem, and the king of Hebron, and the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And made war against it. The first thing that we notice here is that the kings align against Gibeon. The kings align against Gibeon. We see this chapter start similarly to chapter 9. The theme of hearing, and, and Adonai Zedek heard, and the specific t- content was the, the victory over the kings. But even what produced perhaps more fear was the peace they made with Gibeon. And the passage gives us reasons. What are those reasons? Gibeon was a great city. It had mighty warriors. What's more, it's is close by. 
We know geographically it's an important city as well. Serves as major routes between the coastal plain and the lowlands. So the alliance of Gibeon and Israel was a major blow to the security of Jerusalem and many other cities. It's interesting to note, too, that this is the first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible. Uh, during Joshua's time, it was mixed with Amorites and Hittites, and Ezekiel uh, 16, verse 3, gives us a history of Jerusalem. But what does this king of Jerusalem do? He sends word to kings that are strategically located. And they come to the aid, and there's an alliance with these kings. But what do we see with, with Gibeon? What takes place with them? Well, we see this, that aligning with God and the people of God means you get new enemies. One thing that we see from this section is that they, get, they, they align with God and His purposes, but it means new enemies for them. And it's interesting that in this section it says they had prominent warriors, that they're a great city. Like this makes their alliance and their trickery of Israel even that much more astonishing. This was not a hodrum nation who, who's, let, let's deceive them and, and align with this great nation. No, this nation looks great in the eyes of others around them. And yet there was a fear that was produced of God and what he was going to do. But as they align with the people of God, they have more enemies. You see, they must have understood the power of, of Israel's God and what it would bring and f- figure that they'd be worse off if they resisted. Instead of potentially being the commander of armies, they now have armies assembling against them. New enemies. This is a reality that we need to think about in our world today. Many who embrace Christ through faith and trust in, in the gospel face new enemies. They have enemies where they didn't have them before. I might have shared this story before, but I remember as a youth pastor in Pennsylvania that I, I was sharing the gospel with a group of students, and I just remember one girl, and she's, she's intrigued, and you can just see it in her eyes. She's, she's leaning in and, and, and interested and, and talking of, like, I, I think I believe this. I think I need to commit to that, but I know what that means. If I trust in Christ, that means a new way of life. If I trust in Christ, that means my friends will no longer probably be my friends. And I don't know. And I remember just, just looking at this sweet girl who's, who's struggling here and saying, look, look at this group around you. This group of students around you. We're called to be that for you. Even if your friends do walk away, even if they leave you, you have a family here. I never saw her again. I think about it all the time. I, I, I pray for her. How often with aligning with, with God and the people of God means new enemies, means friends that are no longer there. And we see that with, with the Gibeonites. Perhaps they were thinking through their, their head, this is just speculation, but maybe we made a mistake. We don't know how they're feeling, like, but we do know they appeal to the covenant. They don't think, well, this new set of circumstance demands a different kind of response now. No, it was, it was appealing back to the covenant that they had made. It was finding hope and security in that 
covenant. They don't rethink their strategy because of new circumstances. They return to the covenant. They turn to Joshua for help. And we see what Joshua does in response. Joshua responds to them. Joshua comes to Gibeon's aid. Joshua comes to Gibeon's aid. What's interesting is is just how quickly the the kings join together for Adonai Zedek. And just like that, Joshua aligns with Gibeon. Now, that might make sense because last week we saw that he appealed to the covenant. He said, hey, we made this covenant with them, and we need to honor this covenant. And yet, I think we're honest. Like We we can understand why he might not want to come. After all, he made a covenant with people that he wasn't supposed to make a covenant with, right? Perhaps this is a loophole. Perhaps I'll drag my feet, not come to the rescue. Somebody else will kill them. They will be exterminated. And I'll just kind of get out of this sticky business that I caused with my sin. But that's not what happens. Joshua doesn't look for a loophole. He honors his commitments. And by doing so, those who are aligned with God get help. Those who are aligned with God get help. But we need to understand, though, just as Joshua doesn't back out of this commitment but honors the commitment he made before the Lord, we also need to understand the importance of honoring our commitments. How often do we look for loopholes? Even to commitments that we did not go into in a no-win type of situation. But it can be easy for us to back out of commitments. That's not what we see with Joshua here. It says that he went. And the context is immediate because he's responding to the request to come quickly. They say he come quickly, he went. And we know that is, a, is quick because they marched all night. And it's in parallel with the kings who came to the aid of Adonai Zedek. He aligns with the kings for battle and Gibeon appeals into their lines. So Adonai Zedek is aligning with the kings, and Gibeon is appealing to the covenant that they had made before the Lord. One other thing that we need to note in this section is that the promise of God promotes the diligence of Joshua. In the midst of this is is something that didn't happen in chapter 9, but now we see here in chapter 10 that God is speaking. He says, do not fear them, I've given them to your hands. Like, your victory is secure, Joshua. And so what does Joshua do? He says, oh, great. I'm just going to sit down and make some nachos. So I, I, I'm going to take my time because I have the, the victory already. Like He doesn't fall into the error of complacency or being lethargic in the midst of this. He also doesn't fall into the error of just pure pragmatism. Oh, I know what God wants, victory, and so I'm going to use any sinful means that I can to get there. No, instead, what we see is that Joshua pursues and he is, he is leading with confident obedience even in the midst of great opposition. The promises of God should not cause us either to sit and do nothing or to charge ahead not 
paying attention to what God has commanded as, as far as how to do it. But it should, it means confident obedience, continuing on. One other thing that we, that we notice is that there's, there's no second class help sent. Those who are among the people get treated equally. You see what it says in this section that Joshua himself went and he brought all the people of war and all the mighty men of valor. He said, say, hey, I'm going to go rescue this people I made a covenant with, but um, just bring those scrubs over there. No, that's, not, that's not what he says. He says, bring the best. If we're committed to them, we're, we're going to be committed to them and we're going to go ahead. These outsiders were being treated as insiders among God's people. Those who seemingly did not belong were well taken care of. And this is an important truth for us to keep in mind as members of the new covenant. Galatians 3, 26 to 29 has a lot to teach us here. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one. In Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You catch that? There's not one who's better than another. We didn't earn our salvation by being worthy of it, but God gave it to us out of his abundant, inscrutable grace. And through that grace, he has made us and continues to make us beautiful it's so easy to fall in the trap of, of viewing others. And, and, and nobody wants to admit this, right? Nobody signs up and says, I do this. But it can be so easy to view others as second rate in the family of God, in the community of faith. It can be easy to see a prayer request that, that comes across, and maybe it's a friend of ours, maybe somebody that's similar to us, and, and we rush to God. And yet somebody who's, who's in the the, the community, a little bit different, a little bit more awkward than us, a little bit likes different things than us, be a little bit slower to the mercy seat there. Right? That shouldn't be so. But we, are, we are one in Christ. Our unity is found in Christ, not in being clones of one another. It's important for us to recognize that there is no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God for all who have believed in Christ. We are captured by His grace. We are objects of His grace, beautiful, each one who belongs to the family of God. Well, next, in in, in 12 through 15, we see in the heart of, of what was happening here Verse 12 says this. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel stand still at Gibeon and Moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jeshar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? 
There's been no day like this before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. In this section, we see that God gives victory. God gives victory. In the last section, just kind of summarize, we see that, that, that they did not relax, that they, they went immediately and they, they, they chased them down. And in and, and verse 11, it says that the enemy, they, they fled before Israel. They're going down the ascent. That they died in the end of verse 11, but there are more who died from hailstones than from the sons of, of Israel. So we see, we see this, this account of the battle, of the, them hiking all night and the battle ensuing, and then it gives us this interesting note that God did more work than all the mighty, mighty people assembled. You appealed to Joshua, but you got Joshua's God. And Joshua's God is mighty in battle. And we see that again in verse 14, that in this, the Lord fought for Israel. That God himself is the one who gives victory. That the God of the covenant is faithful, and he brings victory. He secures it. Before they trusted in their own wisdom, and now in dependence on the Lord and what he has said, they are victorious. And then there's this interesting bit in between, right? So we see verse 11, victory because of the Lord. Verse 14, victory before the Lord. And then in the middle, there's this, there's this interesting section. What, what is up with this, this day that didn't end? What does this mean? A couple things I want to unpack this, but before we do, I want to, I want to talk about a couple non-negotiables first. As we think about this and, and, and try to wrestle through that, first, God can do anything. Right? Think about Jeremiah 32, verse 27. God says to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Rhetorical question. Answers, no. Right? In Luke 1, 37, an angel says to Mary, Nothing will be impossible with God. Throughout Scripture, we see emphasis on the power of God. From God creating everything out of nothing... God recreating the new heavens and the new earth one day. Second, we don't have a right to stand over the text and have it say what we want it to say. As Christians, we're called to submit to the Word of God. We don't get to change it or make it more comfortable to us or say what we'd like it to say. With that said, we also need to be faithful to what's being communicated and not make it say something simply because it appears more faithful. Right? Uh, just use an example. Think if you said to your, your, your kids, stop pushing my buttons. Hey kids, stop pushing my buttons. Your kid does the same exact thing. I told you to stop. Mom, my hands are right here. I didn't touch anything. Like, that's not going to end well, right? Like, like no, no, like, what I meant by that wasn't that I have physical buttons on me that you can't touch, but what I meant is something specific. And to honor what I'm saying means you understood what I was trying to communicate. Right? Well, in the same way, when we look at God's Word to be faithful interpreters, to understand it well, is trying to understand what it was meaning. Sometimes 
I think we can default to this that uh, the, the, the faithful uh, reading is, is the literal reading, and we, we, we prize the literal reading of Scripture. But if the intent isn't literal, right, um, then it's not being faithful, just like with, with mom buttons being pushed. Right? The intent wasn't that. And so we're going to look at, uh, with those things in mind, we're going to look at uh, five views uh, for understanding uh, this section. Um, we should note it's not the primary gist of this passage, but in order to uh, not think about it too much, we're actually going to dive into it and try to think about uh, what it's trying to communicate. I'm pulling this uh, from Howard's commentary uh, in the New American Commentary um, uh, series. It says this, the first view is uh, a long day, literally stopping the sun and prolonging uh, the daylight so that they could complete the battle. The first view is that the earth stopped rotating. Scripture doesn't use that language, um, but it does use language of what it would look like if that physical occurrence took place. Um, This uh, this is backed up with apocryphal literature, like the book of Sirach and Ecclesiasticus, or it's also called the Ecclesiasticus. Um, Chapter 46, verse 4 says this, Was it not through Joshua that the sun stood still and it one day became as long as two? Jewish historian Josephus also advocated for this view, as did many other Jewish and Christian interpreters. So the day is prolonged so the battle can be completed. Um, One uh, complication uh, with this view, though, is it gives us the direction of where the sun was when the command was given. Sun stands still at Gibeon, and moon in the v- valley of Ajalon. That would mean that the sun is in the east and the moon is in the west. If it's a command for prolonged daylight, for the battle to be complete, um, does it make sense for that command to be given in the morning? When you don't know how long the battle is going to take. You don't know if there's a need for prolonged daylight. So that might be a, a complication. Another complication might be that God ordinarily performs miracles locally, but we could include the flood as global. But this would surpass even that in magnitude. Also, various passages such as Judges 5.20 use a similar language of the stars joining in in the battle, but that's simply to explain the cosmic aspect of what's taking place. A second view, the light lingered because of natural phenomenon. So this view looks for natural ways to explain what happened. and argues that God certainly can do anything, but he also can and does work through natural ordering of the world. It says that the light was reflect, ref, refracted in order for the battle to complete, maybe through the reign of, of meteorites. Right? A complication, of course, is there's no indication at all in the text. Right? It's speculation of this is m- how it might have occurred. Uh, Third, the light was blocked to either frighten the enemy or give give rejuvenation or rejuvenate uh, the soldiers. Um, It's having the light blocked so the troops can be refreshed. It makes sense given the position of the sun and the moon. Um, It can also be caused by a solar eclipse or a hailstorm, some say. 
Um, we see the hailstorm in the previous verses, so we know that that is happening. Some might align with that. Um, complication. Complication is, verse 12 says, sun stand still. In order to get to that verse, you have to say, sun, be silent. In order, and, and what you mean by that is, be dark. Right? So it could be, sun, be still or be silent. Um, which means go dark, but that doesn't work with the parallel in verse, four, uh, verse 13, which says the sun stopped and did not hurry for the whole day. Right? So you're saying that's what it means there, then that's not how it's being connected in the passage. So it seems to have a big issue there. Fourth, the position of the sun and the moon serve as omens. So some say, well, you look at it, um, the context of the day, and in that time and place, there was certain omens uh, in the ancient Near East culture. And so if it was on the 14th day and the sun and the moon were in those same positions, it would be a good omen for the people. But if it was the 15th day, then it would be an evil omen. So different people who appeal to this say it, w- it was probably one of these days, um, either an evil omen to, to scare them, to frighten them, or uh, a good omen to show that uh, Israel had favor from God. Of course, the problem with that is, who's the omen for? Is it evil against Israel? Is it evil for Israel? Is it good for the people who understood and actually held to those things? Or was it good for Israel? And so that's a, uh, that's a challenge. Another interesting part is, Scripture records when they were afraid, when they feared. Why doesn't it mention that here, if that's what was taking place? Uh, fifth view, uh, figurative understanding of the passage. It takes that this, the standstill in this passage means that they were quiet and speechless in light of what's happening. Kind of like a sit and watch what's happening, almost in a dumbstruck or silent awe of what's taking place. As the advantage of uh, Judges 5.20, as we mentioned before, of more of a figurative understanding of similar um, battle. Um, But again, the complication is the second half of verse 13 seems to imply that movement of the sun is at play. So where do we land? Like, what does all this, like, mean? One, I don't know. And I don't think it matters. Another caution that we have to keep in mind with the first view um, is there's a lot of people who try to prove the missing day with really bad research. We, we should be people of truth. Uh, so if we were saying, holding to that view, we have to be careful of, of using good, accurate things and not trying to have a, a got you with uh, bad research. So where I probably, I, I want to land more in the first view, I think it, it, uh, I like the more miraculous um, um, and what, and, but that could be me just trying to be thinking that's the most faithful view too. Um, and the others could be, uh, could be uh, just as uh, is right in this. Uh, one third thing that we should add to the original list of God is in power, um, and we can't diminish that, and we understand the text on its own terms, is that the point of the passage is not dependent on a single interpretation of this event. In fact, look what the narrators 
freaked out about in verse 14. There has been no day like this before or since when God heeded the voice of a man and the Lord fought for Israel. <laughs> like they're saying, there has not been a day like this, not because of what's happening with the sun and the moon, but what's happening with God listening to Joshua. Want to see what I'm emphasizing? You want to see what the text emphasizes? Is God listening to prayer. And isn't this something that Joshua failed at before? He didn't pray to the Lord. He didn't consult the Lord. And now he is consulting the Lord, and the Lord is acting. And he's acting immediately. So third, God gives victory because God listens to man. He listens to his prayer. Del, uh, Dale Ralph Davis says this, The day was unique not for some unusual daylight or darkness, but because Yahweh listened to a man's prayer. In fact, the construction of the Hebrew is almost like we could say, God obeyed Joshua. Now, God is sovereign, free to do all that he wants. We see that in Psalm 115.3. But here we see Joshua's desire for God to act, and it's aligned with the will of God. And isn't that amazing that God listens to us, that God listens to us as we pray to him, and we see here that, God, that Joshua's will is aligned with God's, and God is acting immediately. Do you know that we have one who prays exactly according to the will of God? Because his will is the will of God. He's our advocate, Scripture calls him. He's seated at the right hand of God right now, pleading for your case. Pleading for your victory. That's, it. That's Jesus. The book says, Nothing like this has happened before. Something like this is happening continually for you right now. Amazing. Amazing. We see verses 16 to 28. Kings fled and hid themselves. We see that this instance that they're, that they're hid up in a cave during the battle. It's kind of a wise strategic plan. They don't have to have a ton of people hiding the cave because they roll stones in front of it and kind of keep it guarded that way. And then they return back to it. And when they return back to it, they put these kings and and they place them in a a specific way. Look at verses 22. We'll we'll pick up there. Uh, Joshua said to them, Open the mouth of the cave and bring the five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought those five kings out to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought out those kings to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs and the men of war who had gone with them, Come near. Put your feet on the necks of those kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Listen to this. This should be very familiar to us in this book of Joshua. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until the evening. And at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into a cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. 
As for Makeda, Joshua captured it that day and struck it as king with the edge of the sword, and he voted to destruction every person in it and left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. We see in this section that the kings are conquered. The kings who are assembling and aligning together in hopes of victory are conquered. And Joshua says to the people, be strong and courageous because God is more powerful than any enemy you face. And the enemies are literally under their foot. Reminds us of Psalm 110, doesn't it? The Lord said, my Lord, I'll make your enemies a footstool. Later on, we, we, we see that that's appealed to about speaking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus having the enemies, his, his footstool, one of those enemies, I think this is a, this is a prophecy that's this being fulfilled even going all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 3.15, a descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus on the cross crushes the head of the serpent, dealing him a death blow and giving us victory. That's our God crushing enemies beneath his feet. And we know that the last enemy, 1 Corinthians tells us, is death. And even that will be done away with. Of the victory that we have in Christ. Enemies are nothing but his footstool. And we might wonder, we might think, where do we go from here? Like, what is, what is the people of God? Are they still part of the plan of God? Remember, they've messed up time and time again. And yet we see in this next section that God continues his plan and conquers this southern region through this people. And we know why it happened. Because verse 40 tells us he struck the whole land in the end of verse 40 there because he was doing just as the Lord Israel had commanded him. He's being obedient. See, the southern conquest is accomplished. And, and if you read through that, we don't have time, but if you read through that, you see over and over again, they came here and they conquered, they came here and they conquered, and we'll see that again next week. If we have questions with that, like, like there's a lot of death, there's a lot of slang, like what's happening here? We're going to be addressing that in the coming weeks. But in our passage here, I want to highlight the fact that this is happening because they're being obedient to God. And God is blessing them in the midst of it. The people of God are aligned with God and his will. And God is blessing them. Verse 42. I love this. Joshua captured all these kings and their land one at a time. Because the Lord God, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Why are they victorious? Because the one that they are aligned with is victorious. And he is giving victory. What amazing, amazing truth. How often does blessing come through obedience in our own lives? And typically we go, we go that our own way and disaster follows and we, we continue and we continue and then God wakes us up, right? Blessings following obedience of Christ, blessings of Christian family, blessing of a relationship with our God, blessings of living the way that we were created to be. 
we can go our own way, but that does not profit us. Think of Jesus' words. and What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing. And obedience to the Lord is where life is. And not just life in this age, but it's not complete yet. If we're united to Christ, this is, this is forever. So the question that we have is, is, who are you aligned with? Who are you aligned with? Well, the greater the allegiance, the, the greater the stakes, the more deadly the consequences. And listen, we see, we see kings aligning with each other. And how do they end up? I'm stealing this from Adam for the first service. Like, where, where do they end up? They end up crucified and then thrown, right? They're hung on a tree and then thrown in a cave with the stones still remaining to this day, Joshua said. What about our Savior? He was crucified. He was thrown in a tomb. But that tomb didn't stay empty, did it? Our king is victorious over death. And because of that, that that gives us all the hope in the world. If we're aligned with him, oh, the promises that we have in Scripture. Let's just read one. It's one of my favorite passages. I probably read every other sermon. I don't care. You need to hear it. Romans chapter 8. What should we say then? These things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Who can be against us? Answer, no one. Just in case we're unclear about that, he continues. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who is raised, right? Who's at the right hand? He's living. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us, interceding for us. Just like Joshua's praying for victory. He's praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall all these assembled kings? No. Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Shall cancer? No. Shall that bad news? No. Shall famine or nakedness or sword? No. As it is written, we are swa- slaughtered all the way day long. Sleep to be sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You want to know our position? You want to know who we are? You want to know our identity as Christian? We are more than conquerors. That's who we are. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing can separate us from the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we end with this. Who are you aligned with? This is true. This is hope for all who are aligned with, their, with Jesus Christ. My prayer for you this morning is if you do not know Christ, align yourself with him through repentance and faith. Talk to somebody. Maybe somebody brought you here. Maybe you have a friend and, and you, you just want to know more. Talk to them. Aligning yourself with Christ is the most precious and important thing in the world. The stakes are high. And yet the reward is great. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, the hope that we have in Jesus, that through him we are more than conquerors, that no enemy can stand in our way because they have been defeated or they will be defeated because of our Lord Jesus.
We hope in him. We trust in him. Remind us of who he is as we sing truth to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.